It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. Ladies and gentlemen, the states are ready. Post row. Please welcome President of the National Right for Life, Carol Tobias, from American Family Radio, Sandy Rios, and your host, from Real America's Voice, Amanda Head. What a day to be here. I think that the most important thing to bring to everyone's attention first is that over the course of the life of CPAC, God bless Matt Schlapp, there have been so many conversations about abortion and what would hypothetically happen in a post-Roe America. So I think it's important to recognize that this is the first time that this panel is taking place within the reality that we are a post-Roe America. And that is due in no small part to ladies like you and the efforts that you both have put forth to change that. So, Carol, I want to start with you. I want to talk about the legislative aspect, uh, this, this issue has been sent back to where it belongs, with the states. So give us kind of, a, you know, obviously we don't have time to go state by state, but give us an overview of where states stand. Well, there were 13 states that had trigger laws in effect, so that if Roe was overturned, their law would immediately or very soon after protect unborn children. There were another nine states that had laws on the books pre-Roe that had never been repealed. So technically, those could have gone back into effect. Four states were in both categories. So we had 18 states ready to protect unborn children as soon as Roe was overturned. We now have 10 states with laws in effect because we've got some judges who are looking at constitutions, whether it's still the federal or state constitutions, and pretending that they are like the inkblot in a Rorschach test. That they're just, you know, whatever you want to interpret it to be, that's what it is and they are finding rights in the Constitution to protect abortion, not unborn children. Uh, So we've got a a large battle ahead of us. Um, It's not just the states, though. You know, I think Congress has a role. Uh, There are certainly things that they can be doing as well. Um, And and I want to encourage everybody, we've got to win the vote in November if leaders like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are in charge next year and they've got the votes, we know that they will pass the Women's Health Protection Act so that abortion is legal through the entire country for all nine months of pregnancy and tax dollars will be paying for it. They will get rid of the filibuster so that they can put that law into effect. Uh, And I fully would expect them to try to add more judges to the Supreme Court to overturn Dobbs um, v. Jackson. So we've got to make sure that we are electing good candidates. And I want to say, if your favorite candidate did not win the primary this year, vote for the candidate who did. 
because if Chuck Schumer has another vote, we are in serious trouble next year. Yeah. But I also want to caution every single one of you, this is a 50-state battle. We've got some states that are already protecting unborn children. Many, of, many states are ready to do it, just waiting for their legislature to come back into session. But we are seeing that, I mean, the, our opponents obviously are well-organized, well-funded. We saw what happened in Kansas. Uh, but they are going to go after every state. In South Dakota, which is a very pro-life state, they protect unborn children. Text has already been submitted to the Attorney General so that if he certifies the wording and says this is understandable and this fits the way our Constitution or our you know, procedures work, they will, they're already planning to collect petitions mm -hmm. to have a, ballot on the, uh, a measure on the ballot in 2024 to override what the state legislature has done because they want to take it to the people thinking that they will win. That is going to happen in all 50 states. I truly believe that. So if you've come from a state that you can say, oh, we're good, we're conservative, we're pro-life, we're protecting unborn children, expect some activity like that. So don't take anything for granted. Absolutely. Sandy, I want to pivot to you. Um, there are so many cultural aspects to abortion, but on the medical side, there are some things that are emerging, and I think that the use of the abortion pill is going to become more and more prevalent. Talk to us about the dangers of that. Well, I think people don't understand. I was talking to someone recently, and they said, well, there's just a pill, right? There's a pill now. Why not just take this pill? And then it's much easier, much cleaner. You can do it at home. And I just read that half of the abortions now are through the abortion pill. But the problem is it's not just a pill. It's two pills. The first pill that you take kills the baby. It disintegrates the placenta, and the baby dies. So you do this at home. That's nice and convenient, right? So you wait a certain amount of time, then you take this second pill, and the second pill starts the contractions. And what happens is you give birth at home. You give birth, excuse me if there are children, in your toilet. You are there to deal with all of the blood and the baby. It is a baby. And in some places, they, they can, you can have this French abortion pill uh, from 10 weeks, and in some places it's up to six months. Now, I don't know if that's here in the States, but in some areas of the world, up to six months. And so women are doing this in the privacy of their home without a doctor. And I think we're going to see more of that. Uh, the, the, one of the horrible things that happens from that is if you don't, if it doesn't happen the way it's supposed to, you can ha have this baby, and it can be very deformed and injured from that. Mm. Uh, or you have to go back, and they have to take the rest of the baby out. It's, it's horrific. So if someone tells you there's an abortion pill, and that's great, don't believe it. It is really a nightmare, and it's really disgraceful that we have legalized it. Could I also say, Amanda, when you said that this whole thing of Roe versus Wade happened because of people like Carol and I, I just have to say, you know, one thing that you, those of you that are younger might not know, that in the 70s and 80s, when people were pro-life, there was a huge price to pay for that. Mm. Right now it's kind of in vogue, at least it has been until recently. It's been in vogue. It's been like a, a banner that people have followed and been proud and wear T-shirts. But in those times, it wasn't that way. Joe Scheidler, Pro-Life Action League, had a lawsuit, so, sued by the National Organization for Women, and was in a, a dispute with the, in a dispute that had been taken to the Supreme Court for 20 years. He nearly lost his home and everything. Father of seven children. That's just one example. People like Joe and Phyllis Schlafly 
They're the ones that deserve the praise. I don't think they would have ever thought this would happen. I just don't think I thought it would happen. And so I just want to give tribute to them so that you all know that people really, really paid a huge price to bring us to this point. Yeah, once upon a time they said safe, rare, and legal. Um, and my goodness how that has changed. Carol, I wanted to switch gears with you. Um, the misinformation that's coming from the left, the leftist messaging machine has kicked into overdrive. They are demonizing uh, so many aspects of the pro-life movement. They are lying about repercussions for physicians and doctors, uh, pregnancy clinics. Talk to us about that. I never quite expected the kind of lying and misinformation and to the extent that we are seeing it. Any newspaper, any news outlet, social media, of course, everything is focused on doctors being afraid to treat women with ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages. Because if their state is protecting unborn children, meaning abortion is not allowed in you know, most cases, then they are afraid that they are going to be accused of performing an abortion if they are helping a woman who has a serious problem. This is all baloney. It is um, a total fabrication to scare women. Um, certainly, I don't want my sister to die if she gets pregnant and has a problem. I don't want my daughter to die, you know, whatever it might be. But OBGYNs go to school to learn how to treat these kinds of situations. They are trained in how to remove an embryo or a fetus, an unborn child, from the womb, from the uterus, whether it is abortion, ectopic pregnancy, miscarriage, or complete delivery because the pregnancy was carried to term. We are seeing so many lies about this, but um, every, every OBGYN is trained. They know what to do. Currently, 85 to 90% of OBGYNs do not perform abortions. So we've got all these doctors and certainly hospitals like the Catholic hospitals that have for years been helping women in these difficult circumstances. So you can find a couple of doctors here and there to say, oh, I'm afraid, I don't want to help. They're aiding and abetting the abortion industry and quite frankly, at this point, I would say it seems to be working because a lot of people truly believe they will die if they get pregnant and have a problem. Yeah. And we just need to counter that, that um, message as well. And also, um, what we're hearing is that women are going to end up in jail. Um, National Right to Life led a letter, published a letter, led the drive to get more than 70 pro-life organizations around the country to sign on we have no interest in putting women in jail. They have been raised in a society that says they can't get a job or hold a good job, they can't have a good education if they have a child. We know that women are victimized because they um, are pushed into the abortion, either from their partner, maybe it's their parents, uh, but we also know that even if they think abortion is fine, they have been told that they can't have kids if they want to succeed. So we've got a whole mentality, I think, of women who have, to some extent, been victimized by our culture and by our arguments. Uh, yeah. So we're just saying, we want to save babies. Yeah. You know, we want to go after the doctors who are killing babies. But we're not interested in putting women in jail. And yet, again, that is out there. Women are going to be penalized. They're going to end up in jail. So we have a lot of countering 
to yes. do to the lies that are out yeah, there. Yeah, the, the stigma has to change. And we as conservatives, I think, have got to get better at messaging. Um, Sandy, I wanted to ask you, organizations like Crisis Pregnancy Center that literally only exist to help women. They provide them with the supplies they need, diapers, emotional support. They, again, they literally only help, and yet they are being attacked. These are very dark times. Uh, there's an evil creeping across the country and the globe. I don't think anyone would deny that. And I think one thing that uh, occurred to me, and I alluded to it a few minutes ago, uh, we have kind of worn being pro-life as a badge. It's been safe. Churches have taken on crisis pregnancy centers. We've had T-shirts and marches and all of that. It's been kind of a, in, in a way, in, the, in its dark side, it's kind of like virtue signaling. Well, I'm, pro, I'm pro-life. Politicians, I'm pro-life. That's what gets them elected. We're entering a new place where I think we're going to separate you know, the wheat from the chaff because it's one thing to say it. It's quite another thing to, have your, to be bombed out or attacked or unsafe in a pregnancy center or to be a pastor who preaches about it on Sundays, especially in the states where abortion is legal, uh, it's going to become very unsafe to be pro-life. And so it's going to take a ton of courage for all of us in everything, but particularly in pro-life right now, uh, because the left has chosen this. This is like their, we all know, it's their holy grail. It is their, it's, it's like a sacrament to them. I'll never understand it, but it's like child sacrifices, it seems to be very important to them. And so they, it's like what drives them is so wicked, we can't comprehend it. So we're going to have to just make our foreheads, as the Bible says, harder than their foreheads and not let them. We've got to speak the truth because, for one thing you just mentioned, we do this for women, for heaven's sake. You know, the information is in about how horrible abortions are for women later in life, and for men, fathers, who've allowed their children to be aborted or encouraged it in their girlfriends. This is a, b- a bad thing for everyone. It's just, it's, um, it's an attack against life, and it's redeeming to have those babies. Let someone else take care of them. But it's a redemption, even in the case of rape. So this is why we do this, and we're going to have to steal our resolve if we're going to win this battle. Absolutely. Carol, I... <laughs> For elected leaders who are pro-life, who are, are fighting uh, the other side, whether it's a, a state elected official or someone who, who works on Capitol Hill, what is the best way for everyday Americans, for American voters who are pro-life, to support those elected leaders and let them know they're on the right path, we support you, we're going to vote for you again, please just protect life? I'm sure a candidate would say send a check. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but they do need our encouragement and our support. Um, this is a, a difficult time. I mean, we are in uncharted waters. Uh, there may be a few elected officials who were here before Roe v. Wade, but not many. Um, we've got a lot of candidates who are pro-life, but they also want to get reelected or elected. Uh, they need to know that the pro-life people are standing with them, working with them, Uh, promoting them, and supporting them financially if you can. Uh, They need to hear from us. Letters, phone calls, tell them, I'm pro-life, I love that you are, and I'm I'm with you, I'm I'm supporting you. Thank you for being a voice for the voiceless. Uh, Just keep that encouragement coming, because you know they are hearing from our opponents. Yeah, Amanda, could I add something to that? There's a flip side to that, because some politicians use that as a way to get elected. 
And when it comes time to actually do something on the life issue, they run and hide or they do nothing. And so they need to be helped to vote them out. So if you've got a, a, a primary where all the candidates say they're pro-life, look to see that they've actually got skin in the game. They've actually done something. And if they haven't, they don't deserve your support. Sandy, I wanted to finish with you uh, on the cultural side. You see, you see Democrats and liberals using talking points about other countries that are so much more for women's rights, and then when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, these are countries that actually uh, ban abortion even earlier than we do here in, in our 50 states. What does it say about a country? Let's say that Roe v. Wade was not overturned. What does it say about a country like ours culturally that we have allowed this to endure for so long? It's a great shame that we would allow our children to be slaughtered in such mass and allow our women to become so hard-hearted and allow our children to look at us with blank stares because they they've forgotten they don't even know why life is precious. I don't know how we got here other than the fact that we allowed too much along the way. We tolerated too much. And we have to stop that. We've got to say, this is the line. Life is sacred. And we have to reestablish that. And we can do that. We can do that. We've got to do it to our children. Carol does that all the time with National Right to Life. We just have to say it over and over again as until people listen. We've got to turn the ship around. And I believe it can be done, and it must be. Well, I think for so long there have been so many pro-life Americans. They are emboldened now, like I said, to, to, you know, to your credit, the work that you ladies have both done. So we appreciate you. It's a new day in America. It's post-Roe America. Yes. It's yes. incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> All righty. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All I asked for was accountability of my senior leaders when there are clear, obvious mistakes that were made. I'm not saying we can take back what has been done. All I asked for was accountability for people to comment on what I said and to say, yes, mistakes were made. I think them accepting accountability would do more for service members and PTSD and struggling with purpose than any other transparent piece of paper or message. And I haven't received that. All right, well, that was the frustrated, angry voice of Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. And you will remember that it's been a year, a year ago when we withdrew so disgracefully in Afghanistan, where 13 service members were killed. Uh, and you can imagine the agony of the men on the ground, the service people on the ground, sensing the chaos, watching that plane and people grabbing it. It was just such an embarrassment and also a tragedy for so many people that were left behind and uh, people that had helped us who were Afghans, Americans who were in various parts of the country. It was a terrible, terrible thing that President Joe Biden did and his military team who are a disgrace to all of us. And that caused a lot of our military leaders like the one sitting across from me who had served for so many years to really just have a melt meltdown. You probably a lot of meltdowns you never saw. But Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller uh, went public and actually resigned his commission after so many years of service in the military because of his experiences there. And uh, I'm happy to have him with us this morning. Lieutenant Colonel Scheller, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on, Sandy. You miss that title, don't you? I bet. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia. I, I love the Marine Corps. I loved being part of the military, and everything I did was for love of service. So, yes, obviously there's days where I miss it, but I'm looking forward. I try not to look back. I made decisions that I thought were important. That's it. 
I think transcend my service to the military. You know, my service has always been about to the American people, to the country, leaving a better future for my children, and I still plan on doing that. You know what? You did something so courageous and meaningful. I know that you are paying a price for that, but you have every reason to hold your head high and be proud of what you did. Not ashamed. Yeah. You gave up something that you loved because you were trying to make things better, and you gave you made a sacrifice. How about, you know, it's funny, isn't it? In our country, people think if you make a sacrifice, if it co something costs you something, that you're kind of dumb to do that. Yeah. Instead of thinking that, wow, that person was willing to give their life, to give their resources, their treasure. They gave that up for a principle. That seems foolish to some people, but not here. I mean, there are a lot of Americans that understand completely uh, Colonel's story. You, you, to your point, so many people were confused by it. It's almost like they want to fill in a justification for everything other than you being principled in your stance. And so after, you know, this escalated after a lot of statements I made, I ended up in jail. And then after jail, I got out first week of October. I didn't make any statements until I got out of the Marine Corps Christmas Eve. And that was a really tough time for me because I, I couldn't speak illegally. And everyone had a justification. So I was fascist. I was a racist. I was an extremist. It was yeah, politically mental motivated. Problems. It was, yeah, that's right. Mental problems. Uh, it, yeah, exactly. Mental yeah. breakdowns. So no one said he's doing this because he loves America and he's principled in his stance. And it was just very hard. You have to know that people knew that anyway. Look, you are kind of, I hope, now that you're making transition a little bit, that you can see that the American people, the ones who actually liberally love this country, know exactly what you were doing. Yeah. They don't have the voice. They don't have the microphones. They don't have the pins of the Washington Post, the New York Times. Uh, they don't appear on CNN. But the polls show that they get it. So you just, and also you know in your own heart that what you did, you did for the right reasons. You made a great sacrifice. You, you've shown us what manhood is really like. And just because the culture doesn't know what it means to be a man anymore yeah. doesn't mean you have to go their way, okay? so I appreciate you saying that. And that's why, you know, I had never been to a CPAC, and uh, I'm, I'm starting to get out and go to places like this because it's been encouraging to find Americans that are like-minded, that support me, that see the world in the same way. I, I do want to go back a little bit. Help, help us to understand, prior to that withdrawal, it's just such a nice name for something so horrible. Yeah. Um, what were you doing in Afghanistan? Yep. So I've done five deployments, Iraq and Afghanistan included. I did a year in Afghanistan. I was My billet was actually called counter IED team leader. So I was an infantry officer that ran with EOD and RCP. And I worked mostly on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. So most Marines are familiar with RC Southwest. Uh, but as a Marine, I was with the 101st Army in a province called Paktika. Then I moved over to Ghazni, and I had a full year of combat, uh, you know, awards for, for Valor, Bronze Star, all that. And, um, you know, it, it was a very challenging deployment. Missed the birth of my first son mm. and uh, just poured a lot of sweat, tears into it. And, you know, my deployments really shaped my thinking. So when you're young, you know, one of the arguments was, why now? You deployed all these places, and now you're speaking up, almost trying to invalidate my comments because I was doing it because President Biden was a president, which wasn't the case. I was doing it because I gained a deeper appreciation for our missteps in foreign policy, and it got to a certain point where I knew no senior leaders would take accountability. We've developed a morally courageous, bankrupt senior leadership officer corps, and they just they don't do what they need to do. When we, when we need... A, military leaders standing for American values, we instead find these impressively dressed old men nodding yes, not doing what they should be doing. True. All true. Yeah. And I, you know, I have some good friends in the high, in high places. That sounds so braggadocious. I don't mean it to. I have the privilege of knowing some really quality people like you. 
who serve at the highest levels and are true patriots. And I asked one of them, who was a lieutenant general, is there anyone left on the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Is there anyone left in those high positions who really loves this country and is doing the right thing? And he said, no. Yeah. They've all been removed. I mean, you know, uh, Bill Clinton did terrible things to undermine the military. Remember he said, you might not even know this, he had said in his early years that he loathed the military, and he showed it by his policies. So then we, we built it back, and President Trump certainly built it back. Uh, but now we have these people in place, and they have removed. You know, all the good, so many of the good people like you are leaving. Yeah. Well, um, so President Trump had a lot of great foreign policy positions and, and actually poured a lot of money into the budget. I think his misstep was hiring General Mattis. So like yes. right now, General Mattis is a lionized, but he hasn't won a single war. He went from General Dynamics to Secretary of Defense right back to General Dynamics. Um, you know, the guy could have won the opening gambit of Afghanistan under the Task Force 58, didn't do it. When we killed Osama bin Laden, we had an off-ramp. He was a CENTCOM commander, didn't do it. And so this guy has built this reputation. But if you actually look at his success rate, uh, it's it's a dismal. Uh, well, he wasn't the only one. There were others who was his chief of staff. Who resigned up, and so it, it's been it's been a long time coming. I I hate to ask you this, but we we're we're at the anniversary, uh, which is to you so personal. But Americans need to be reminded. If you could just, in a capsulated yeah. form, tell us what happened that day yep, so or during those days. The Afghanistan withdrawal slash evacuation actually considered two different military operations. There's no better example of military failure. So I'll very quickly run through it. 1 April 2021, Joe Biden ordered a drawdown of military troops. General McKenzie, the theater commander, had a moral professional obligation to push back. He didn't because he doesn't have any moral courage. So he says, okay, I'll do it, even though I disagree. He drops down from 2,500 to 650 troops. Now, we did that from April to September. Everyone that's been to Afghanistan knows the Taliban hides in the mountains of Pakistan from you know, October to March. And there, so we could have done it just the other six months and been unmolested by the Taliban, but the PR date of September 11th was worth risking American lives and treasure. And again, General McKenzie goes along with it. And so when he starts drawing down military troops, he concurrently assigns a one-star general, a guy's name was Farrell Sullivan, to plan the evacuation. So while McKenzie's drawing down troops, Farrell Sullivan planning the evacuation. So on 1 April, he starts that. He plans on using Bagram Air Base. This is Farrell Sullivan. And he plans all the way to the third week of June because Bagram Air Base was the key piece of train we needed to conduct the uh, evacuation. And then suddenly, the third week of June, General McKenzie makes a decision that 650 troops is not enough to hold the embassy, the Kabul airfield, and Bagram. And so it causes the planners to reset the plan. You know, we ended up conducting the evacuation in August. So after almost three months of planning on Bagram, they have two months until execution to now completely change the plan. And that's never actually addressed in congressional testimony. I'm telling you facts. This is in the military investigation that not a lot of people have access to. But So this is all factually laid out in there. So the end of June, we decided to abandon Bagram. We end up doing it the first week of July. We leave 7,000 prisoners in the prison. So imagine getting three meals a day, and then all of a sudden your prison guard just stops bringing you food. A month later, August 10th, the Taliban walks through Afghanistan completely unopposed, walks into Bagram, releases all 7,000 prisoners. We'll never know definitively. It seems pretty clear to me that the suicide bomber came from the prison. They walk up to Kabul. So now we're at 15 August, right when General McKenzie, a day late and a dollar short, throws 5,000 troops. So he goes from 2,500 down to 650 and then throws 5,000 more back into Kabul rather than having like one coherent plan. 
the Marines get into firefights with the Taliban. Again, this is all documented information. We kill at least a dozen Taliban fighters. The very next day, where those Marines are told to stand post with the same people they were in shooting matches with a terrible position. Obviously, the Taliban then lets the suicide bomber through the checkpoint. He kills the 13 service members and hundreds of others at the gate. In response to that, General McKenzie conducts a drone strike, kills nothing but women and children. And then following that, they declare what an overwhelming success it was, even though there was Afghanis hanging onto the airplanes and there was no security. General Donahue, one of the senior generals that responded to that terrible situation, takes a picture of himself as he's walking to the bird as the last American, like he's some you know, tough guy. Can you imagine being one of the leaders that retreated to the or surrendered to the Taliban, got a bunch of people killed, and then said, hey, take a picture of me because I want to look tough. Like, I can't even wrap my head around the lack of humility. And so just like through and through, complete failure, and yet not one senior general has even acknowledged, yes, we didn't do this well. And so just, you know, looking at the system can't evolve without timely, accurate assessment of failure. Don't let them get to you do you want to be like that no no you don't not. you're a man you you're you're head and shoulders above those kind of people no matter what their rank and so you'll be proud of that uh, I, and i realize that you know still the winds blow and you have to you have to you've you've had trouble in your personal life your yeah. family and it's just been a tragic thing but i think just don't do not yield to the temptation to to beat yourself up over that you've been a real um example to so many people and imagine the soldiers who've looked to you uh, and looked to you from afar that you've never met for what you example the american warrior at his finest i appreciate you. you saying that that's you thank you so i want to say that you've i want to repeat that you've written a book it's coming out soon it's called crisis of command how we lost trust and confidence in america's generals and politicians i could have written a chapter in that book <laughs> no hey, yeah i appreciate you plugging the book so i've been I wrote the book, uh, finished it really in April, and it just takes a weird time for books to publish. But it's actually coming out at a, at a good time, I think. You know, the anniversary of of the attacks, and quite honestly, September 11th. So it's kind of it's coming out September 6th, right in the middle of that. And my media tour on, on all the network shows will probably start right around August 25th. And you can pre-order it on Amazon. But it, I think it's a great story because it covers my 17 years uh, careers, like almost half the book. So I quickly go over my assessment of how. I started to identify the deep systemic problems in the military, and then it goes into the real raw micro story of what I went through once I posted that first video, and it just further illustrates the hypocrisy of the system. And then I kind of end it with a punch list of how we can reform the military, because I do believe it can be reformed. It just requires us changing leadership, and so um, I hope everyone gets a chance to read it. Cool. I mean, yeah, I hope so too, and I hope we can talk again. So. What's the status now? Are you employed? Are you looking for employment? Or no, I'm. My goal right now is to bring change to the military and government system. So right now, what I did when I got out of uh, the Marine Corps, I spent two months just in the media telling my side of the story because I kind of had to fight the narrative. Then I wrote a book, so that was two months. And then you know the next two months was really like stew personal time. I had to get my stuff out of personal storage and, and just kind of get my life set. Yeah. And then uh, I'm going to spend the next really I'm booked starting mid August till the holidays to promote this book. And then going into 23, I'm going to assess the landscape. And there's a, there's a chance I jump into politics. I don't know. I don't want to be a politician, but I just see so many shortfalls of our current politicians. And so. You know, once I kind of run this course of the journey that I'm on, if uh, once it, I decide it comes to a stopping place, I'll get a job. But right now, I just don't want to. I'm so committed to making America better for my sons that I, I don't want to stop. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I like that plan. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we wish you really the very best. And 
I, I what I'd like to see happen. I, I don't know. Have have you testified before Congress? I haven't. Uh, I've got a lot of obviously congressional friends. Um, I'm meeting some of them here at CPAC. Well, this is what they need to do. The Republicans of Congress need to hold a hearing with you on the anniversary of this withdrawal and let you tell this story. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh, so, make a note. Make note to self to make that <laughs> to help you make that happen. I appreciate that. Seriously. So uh, anyway, um, I want to ask our audience who are listening to to pray for you, for healing, for strength. Uh, for your family, your parents, and also your children, your former wife, you know, just to bring healing into all of that and make you whole and equip you for that next battle because I, I don't think you're finished yet. So. Thank you, Sandy. Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, we thank you so much in every way and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. I hope so. All right, Sandy Brios in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Getter or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. All right, Sandy Rios, back with you. And you know, when I'm at CPAC, I meet all kinds of wonderful people. And it's just such a privilege to interview them in the person. And so in the person, across from me is Trent Talbot. Trent, you look familiar to me. Why is that? Well, I've done a little PR over the past year or so with Brave. <laughs> Maybe I've just kind of caught you. Now, here, this picture, I see you've got a big cowboy hat on. So are you are you like a Western dude? Well, yeah, I was born in a small town in Texas. so. Oh, well, it's okay. That yeah. counts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I probably want to be more of a cowboy than I actually am. <laughs> like like Sean Hannity? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The guy from Brooklyn or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> Something like that. No, you're, you're from Texas. You can do that. Okay. Cool. We have a friend, actually. That now that I said that, we have a good friend that from Chicago. This is my one of my husband's closest friends who moved to Dallas, and now he loves He's a cowboy, too. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're all cowboys. That's right. We're all cowboys at heart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Trent, uh, let me just say that he Trent is the CEO of uh, Brave Books, and that's what we're going to talk about because... For those of you who, like me, either have children or grandchildren, um, and you know what's happening in public schools, it's a battle that's been raging for decades. Even when my son was little, they were putting trash in front of our children to read. Parents just are now figuring that out, and the trash has gotten worse. Uh, But it's been happening for a very long time. And so Trent has developed a series of books that are an alternative to that, and that's what we want to talk about. It's kind of a nice break from politics, but... There's some politics involved, and this isn't there. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so we're a pro-God, pro-America, anti-woke children's book publisher, and we think that there's a real war going on for the hearts, minds, and souls of our kids, and we think that you know parents are either passively lose, they're either actively fighting for their kids' hearts and minds, or they're passively losing them, because culture... Kids are getting indoctrinated from all angles with, with our culture, whether it's on their phones, social media, movies, TV, at, at schools, or the books that they read. And you know, we think that there needs to be an alternative that helps reinforce the values that we as Christian, conservative parents that we hold dear. Do you have little ones? I do, yes. So was there a thing oh, that yeah. happened that caused you to say, I'm going to develop books for my children and other children? What yeah. happened? Well, I was a practicing ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon, and never would have imagined two years later I'd be doing this. But, but I had my daughter, Charlotte. Uh, she was born in the summer of 2020, 
and oh. and I'm sitting there holding her in my arms. She's three weeks old, scrolling through Twitter because I'm sort of addicted to Twitter. And uh, I see a trailer for a film called Cuties, which is that film on Netflix that um, basically sexualized young girls. They were doing these sexually provocative dances, and and I was just sick to my stomach. I was thinking like, this is what my daughter is going to end up seeing, and. Just couldn't shake it. It sort of sent me down this rabbit hole of looking at what else culture is pushing our kids, and saw the books that are out there: anti-racist baby, all these transgender books, and it's like, wow. Um, Had you no idea before? I had no that. idea. You know, you know, when you're not a father, you sort of aren't paying attention. You're just concerned with whatever else. And uh, but but yeah, just my mind was blown, and and I feel like God just put this calling on my heart to to do something to create an alternative. And I just couldn't shake the idea, and eventually decided to leave leave my practice and do this. It's kind of crazy, but it was uh, very happy I did. It's been a lot of fun. It's been we we've had a lot of success, so it's been a good good decision, and, and it's uh, and I'm really happy I did it because because I think that we are making a difference. We've been in a hundred thousand homes. We've been able to partner with some of the biggest names if, in conservatism, and um, yeah. All right, so let's talk about what the books are, because you know. There are several endeavors about, you know, getting better reading into ch- children's hands and to provide parents, like homeschool parents and all of that. Uh, but particularly, what's your vision for that? You, you know, we, there's a ton of children's stories that are, you know, like tell simple little stories about being honest or being nice or whatever, how to go to the bathroom, whatever the books are, yeah, you know. Yeah. But what is, you know, what did you have in mind and what are you doing? What's your niche for children? Well, we... We take on some of the most important issues that our children are facing. For example, our first three books was Elephants Are Not Birds, which covers the topic of gender identity. Elephants are not birds. Elephants are not birds. That's news. I'm glad I have to read this. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> right. It's and, a gender identity. Yeah, yeah. So we, we covered gender identity. Our second book was Little Lives Matter, The Sanctity of Life. Third book was The Island of Free Ice Cream on the Dangers of Communism. So we take some of these ideas that kids are seeing and we we turn them into stories and and our books are the opposite of preaching which which we feel like that's where conservatism goes wrong whenever they try to yes it's just so dry and preachy ours are just really fun stories we've created this whole universe um called freedom island every story takes place i'm I'm whipping out a a poster for for those listening um which is a poster of freedom island and every story takes place on a different different location and so the kids, whenever they get their first book, they get this poster. They hang it in their room, and each book comes with a new sticker, and they visit a new place on Freedom Island, and, and kids just absolutely love it. And that's really cool. <laughs> this is a great graphic. Thank you. What yeah. kids, did you just think of this? Yeah. yeah. You, these, are, these are your ideas. You're not your creative ophthalmologist. I guess so. Yeah. I did you, do, you did creative eye surgery then, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah, that just needs to be very repetitive. <laughs> so what for these particular books that you gave me, Elephants Are Not Birds on yes. a di- Sexual Identity, Little Lives Matter on the Sanctity of Life, and then, More than spots and stripes. With, uh, which is, that was with the Hodgswins on CRT. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, what? This must be a certain age group. So what yeah, is? Yeah, we're like in the four to ten range. All right, and are all your books geared for that four to ten range right, right now? Right now, we're we're so our our current offerings are just picture books, but we're working on some middle grade novels to hit that you know eleven to seventeen range. You know, I find myself worried even, like, Amer- American Dolls, for instance. Uh, I have yeah. granddaughters. 
and American Dolls has been kind of a staple for many homes. Not for me, I didn't grow up with that, but I understand uh, that many people love that for their girls, and they have all these books. I've you know been to the bookstores and or to the stores, and I see these books. But I, I now I can't say this declaratively, but I had an impression when I read parts of one of the books that it was like it was like this feminist. Uh, treatment of girl and I thought I don't want my I don't want my granddaughter reading that I can't how can I trust what they're writing yeah. you know and uh, so it is important to have actually reading material that parents can trust yes which you're gonna you're gonna get into that too yeah yeah I mean uh, starting off now with with picture books and yeah we're getting in middle grade novels eventually a TV show and and our our thing is we just want to create a brand that parents can absolutely trust with their kids imaginations because it, I would not trust Disney. I would not trust oh my gosh. You know, any of these companies with my kids' imagination because they're, you know, they're, they don't have the same values I have. And our kids are extremely impressionable. They're extremely influenced by the characters that they see, by the stories. And, and so it's hard for parents right now because we, we don't have very many uh, companies that we can trust. And so that's what we want to build. Yeah, and I... You know, I don't know what the stats are, but like on the transgender issue and on uh, the gender issue in general, children are, uh, when they do surveys, they find out that there's so many more kids that identify as homosexual or transgender. And that's only because, I say, in debates, because they've been propagandized. Yeah. Uh, they would never even thought of that. Uh, so things are not changing like that. It's just that the kids are susceptible to the suggestions. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about how you handle this. I, I'm really curious because I'm. Let's say I'm reading my four-year-old. Elephants are not birds. Mm -hmm. How in the world do you get into making that? I understand, of course, as an adult. But how do you get uh, explicit with them about gender with them when they don't? Hopefully, really yeah. understand yeah, what yeah. all that means. So we don't get explicit in the story. The story is just a. It's just a great story, you know. I, I the, the plot is an, a, an, a Kevin the elephant is a very good singer, and he loves to sing. And then one day, a vulture named Culture comes and tells him that that hey, you're such a good singer. Surely, oh surely, you must be a bird. And so, <laughs> so Kevin believes him and goes along with that because he loves to sing and he loves the idea of flying. You know, he's in, in the cover. He's dreaming of him flying. And so Culture gives him a beak and some wings and he tries to fly. It does not go well for him. But eventually he ends up saving the town because there's a fire and he puts the fire out with his trunk. <laughs> and so Kevin learns that, that he's special and important the way that he was made. Um, but, but, okay, that he, but that he can still, but that he can still sing. You know, that, and he, he can sing and still be an elephant. And um, and then so that's just the story. Kids love the story. Sure, they're not really thinking. Oh, you know, if you're a boy, you're a boy. But in the back of the book, we have some, something called the Brave Challenge. And the, what the Brave Challenge is is we uh, is it's a set of games and discussion questions which helps facilitate a conversation between the parents and the kids um, mm -hmm. to help them take sort of the story where the the lesson was sort of hidden, I guess, and get it. To sort of the top of the top of mind, where they can understand and articulate it. Okay. So, that's our that's our that's our strategy. It works incredibly well. And the, the other thing that it does is it turns the parents into the resource that kids look to when they have questions about how life works or right. questions yeah. about the world. And helps parents to think through it too. Yeah. Because they've never had to think through these things. <laughs> yeah. So they stay silent. Right. And that's terrible for yeah, children. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how does this work? 
Is this a, a book club? Can yes. Can you buy these book? It's a book club. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're, we're actually a book of the month club. Okay. And people go subscribe and they get a book every single month. Now, uh, we've, we've done 14 books. So you can go and you can buy the previous 14 and then subscribe. And then every every month you'll get your new Freedom Island book. <laughs> so where would people go to do that? Bravebooks.com. I kind of thought it might be that. Yeah. Bravebooks.com. Now, you... I however hurried over this part, but I want us to go back yeah. because there are other books. Now this sounds more mature. I don't know if these are still for the three through ten, four through ten. Yeah. Um, you have a lot of conservative writers writing on mm-hmm. more sophisticated topics. Still four through ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Dinesh D'Souza, what did he write? For Dinesh D'Souza is actually hit him and Debbie wrote a book with us called Freedom Day: The Ashaway. It's our it's our August book of the month, so it, so it's it's going on. It's the book of the month for this month, and it's on socialism. And, oh, cool! And you know, you think you think that it's sort of a little high level for for kids to understand it, but it's really not. Like socialism is pretty simple when you boil it down to just fairness. Yeah. Yeah. Like giving away your ice cream. Yeah. Is that what you used? Well, uh, no, we did we did went a little bit different way, but okay, yeah. all right, okay, so. This is such a great idea. <laughs> Thank I you. mean, in fact, that's probably why our mutual friend Matt Fracci wants to help you make this into some kind of a video, movie, or what? TV this show. TV show. Yeah. Better yet. Yeah. Now, if people want to do this, how, what's the cost to be a subscriber for BraveBooks.com? Um, it is. We just changed the price. Eighteen ninety nine dollars a month. That includes shipping, so um, that's all you're paying. Um, and yeah, you get a book every single month. It comes with games and discussion questions in the back. And man, I mean, the, our subscribers absolutely love it. Say they've, they've, it's changed the d- dynamics in the home. Any, Could, re, any regrets about leaving ophthalmology? No, I'm having so much fun. I, I've been hanging out with Cash all weekend. <laughs> He's the coolest. Just like my my life has totally changed, but in the funnest way possible. <laughs> and how old is your daughter now? She is just over two. So yeah. you're not you, you haven't read these to her yet. <laughs> no, she loves the pictures. <laughs> she loves especially our rhyming books when I when she loves the tempo or whatever. But but uh, no, she she doesn't appreciate it. But but she's definitely the reason why this whole thing happened. And whenever she gets older, uh, I think she's going to love them. You'll have to dedicate, I don't know, something to her along the way. We did. Sure so will. we've got a location of Freedom Island called Starlet City. Her name's Charlotte. So. Oh, that's yeah. very cool. Well, Trent Talbot, this is great. He's the CEO of Brave Books. It's bravebooks.com. And it's something that I bet you just about every single person listening to me is going to be interested in. Oh, I really do think exciting. that. So. Trent, good luck, and it's really nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. Yeah, so God bless your endeavors and your family, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.